happy Sabbath to you all, and uh, welcome to any guests that we have here today. We had a very enjoyable uh, feast review last night and had presentations of our members who had visited international areas, which included um, Israel and Guyana and England and Argentina and Kenya, so five international sites, and of course uh, our Charlotteans visited other countries as well. But it was just a very enjoyable evening, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll have more reports from people around the world. Uh, thank you very much, ladies, for that inspiring trio. We appreciate that uh, one day there'll be no more wars and uh, children will play. Uh, we pray for that day. I do extend you greetings from our Mississauga, Ontario office. Uh, the media team there taped four television programs for the Chinese edition for Hong Kong. It's a special edition which limits advertising. They don't allow advertising during the program, uh, but only at the end of the program. So we have to have a special format for that program. I hope you uh, have tuned into it on our website. It's tomorrowsworldhk.com. So if you haven't done that, how many of you have actually actually uh, visited tomorrowsworldhk.com. Let me see your hands. Okay, that's about uh, 14.5%. The rest of you need to get more involved in God's work around internationally, and if you have access to the Internet, to please take a look at that. Last Monday, uh, while we were in Toronto, uh, the area, uh, Canada held provincial elections, including that for Mississauga's area. We have our Canadian office in Mississauga, which is the sixth largest city in Canada. Hazel McCallion, who is the mayor of Mississauga, retired after serving 36 years continually as Mississauga's mayor. She was called Hurricane Hazel. In fact, uh, the office gave me a book about Hurricane Hazel, A Life with Purpose. She retired just last Monday at age 93, after 36 years as mayor, and every year had a balanced budget for that city. Quite a remarkable record. As uh, Mr. Rod McNair announced last night, we had uh, the fee site, actually confirmed it was 51 fee sites in 32 different countries. So we appreciated the presence of God's Spirit and the inspiration of the brethren and the ministry, and of all the blessings that came out with the love and truth and revelation that God shared with us. On the other hand, nations and peoples around the world have searched for God unsuccessfully. Several books have been written that chronicle that history on the search for God. Last week we heard Mr. Sean Dumas' sermonette, titled The Truth About Cosmology, and he quoted Romans 1 and verse 20, that those who deny the existence of God are without excuse. We know that God continues to witness to the world through his creation. We'll turn to Psalm 19. I think we may have even read that last week, but Psalm 19 gives us that witness. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. So you can't, with light pollution, people don't see the heavens as often. 
and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Though God continues to witness of his existence through the creation, but God also reveals himself through the Holy Bible, the Scriptures, his Holy Word. The Logos, the Word that was made flesh, dwelled among us. John 14, uh, verse 6, well, John 1, verse 14, says that he dwelt among us. So God revealed himself through Christ coming to this earth in the flesh as the Word. And he proclaimed in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he continued to say, no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. He promised us that we should know the truth. John 8, verse 31. And Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Well, they didn't abide in his word, but if they did, then they could be his indeed disciples. And that's what we must be, abide in his word. You shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. God's truth is just priceless and precious. One of the greatest truths that God has revealed to us is our very purpose in life. That purpose is for begotten children of God to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and to be born into his immortalized, glorified family at the last trumpet, the seventh trumpet. Well, God is love, and he's commanded us to show him love in a special way. So turn there to Mark, the 12th chapter. Mark 12, of course, they have the Matthew account, but here I'd like to show you Mark's account, Mark 12, starting in verse 28. Then one of the scribes came, having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he answered them well, Asked, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with what? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The Greek is denoia, meaning understanding. And with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So, brethren, have you personally obeyed that commandment? God has called us to have a loving, intimate, continuous relationship with him, our Father in heaven, and with our Savior, Jesus Christ. So how loving, how intimate, how continuous has your relationship been with our Father in heaven and with Christ? So my question for you today is, how close are you to God? We can be close to God if we draw near to him. He's given us that awesome promise. James 4, verse 8. James 4, verse 8. Sometimes we do not feel close to God. I know we had... Years ago, 
back in Pasadena, if someone were to uh, visit with Mr. Armstrong, I'd say, well, are you prayed up? In other words, have you prayed so that you're close enough to God? You're going to be talking with God's apostle here. Uh, are you close to God? But God has given us this awesome promise. Have you claimed that promise? Have you embraced that promise? We heard the word embrace in the sermonette. And here's the promise, James 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So here is what actually Mr. Armstrong called the two initiatives. We initiate action on our part. Uh, The other initiative is, verse 7, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, if we draw near to God, he promises to draw near to us, but he continues there in verse 8, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You know, sometimes we're double-minded. We haven't made a total commitment, and the sermon that has exhorted us to make that commitment by embracing the mission that God has given us. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's a promise, and I want to encourage you today to make sure that you are embracing that promise, claiming that promise, acting on that promise. The actual subtitle here in some of the King James, New King James Bible is Humility Cures Worldliness. We can draw close to God, as we always said, time and time again through prayer, Bible study, meditation, and fasting. We all need to live that way of life. Uh, Dr. Meredith gave the sermon last Sabbath titled, Build Strong Habits. Do you have strong habits of heartfelt daily prayer? Let's take a look at those who did not draw near to God, but those who neglected God. We'll take a look at some of those examples. Throughout history, some individuals have resisted God's calling, resisted his love, Some even hid from God. But instead of hiding from God, we need to run toward God and let him take care of us. We need to draw close to him. Let's take a look at a couple examples. First of all, one of the most classic of all is Jonah. Turn to Jonah, the first chapter. I always have to go through Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Uh, that's how I find Jonah in my Bible. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. Jonah 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Eternal came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So God gave Jonah a mission. He did not embrace that mission. But notice verse 3, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Maybe some of us have done that in the past, that we resisted God's calling and we fled from God. No, we need to run toward God, not flee from him. And you know the story, we won't go through the whole book of Jonah, but you know the story that God finally convinced Jonah uh, to uh, go to Nineveh. And uh, he finally uh, fulfilled God's mission for him. Uh, there is in our hymnal, uh, Psalm, what was it, uh, 
have that page 98. I'd ask to Mr. Lyons to find that for me because I just remembered that. Uh, Lord, teach me that I know. It's uh, page 98, Psalm 143. We sing, Unto thee I flee to hide me. Uh, that just stuck in my mind when I think of Jonah fleeing away from God. And here we sing the hymn, To you I flee to hide me. Teach me now your will to do. For you eternal are my God. Lead me by your spirit good. So we need to flee towards God. Who else hid from God? Genesis 3 and verse 8. Genesis 3 and verse 8. These are classic examples. They should be object lessons for all of us that we don't follow those bad examples. After Satan had uh, deceived uh, Eve and they... Their eyes were open, Genesis 3, verse 7. They knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the eternal God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and what did they do? And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God, the eternal God, among the trees of the garden. Then the eternal God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, said Adam to God, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And you know, they were just cast out of the Garden of Eden and with angels protecting the garden. So here you have classic examples of those who hid from God. Acts, the seventh chapter, gives us an example of those who resist God's Holy Spirit. Um, Perhaps God has led you by his spirit and you resisted because you were co-opted or you were in an addiction or a habit that was sinful and you you resisted God's spirit and you didn't follow God's spirit. Here, as you know, the first martyr Stephen was defending himself before the Sanhedrin. He was uh, recounting the whole history of Israel. And then for some reason, the whole theme changed and and God inspired him to give a strong indictment against the Sanhedrin. So in Acts 7, uh, starting here in verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so did you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. He was very plain spoken. They were the betrayers and murderers of the just one, the Messiah, the king of the Jews, the one that had been prophesied by all the prophets who have received, you have received the law by direction of angels and have not kept it. And so they gnashed on him with his teeth, and of course God gave him a vision. Verse 55, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now here was one man who was very close to God, Stephen, willing to die for his Lord, willing to 
be plain spoken towards the Sanhedrin that they were murderers of the just one, but they had also resisted the Holy Spirit. Do we at times resist the Holy Spirit? It tells us in Romans 8.14 that those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. We need, brethren, to pray that we will always be led by the Spirit of God. Let's take a look at a couple more individuals who have resisted God or who have neglected God. In this case, Matthew 25, you know, the foolish virgins. Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. We have been called to meet the bridegroom. We've been called to marry the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Verse 3, those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. The lamps are not going to shine. They're not going to have fire. They're not going to have light unless there was oil to go with them. And so when the bridegroom came, verse 10, those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. So when Christ comes, it indicates, yes, we will go with him to the sea of glass and to the wedding because immediately the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, verse 11, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. So the message for all of us, verse 13, Matthew 25, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And, of course, we know the general season. He says, when you see these come to pass, know that the time is near. And at the same time, we know that any any day we could die. We're only one breath away from death. And so we need to always be ready. In that sense, uh, we need to know that we are ready for the coming of our Lord. One of our uh, students here in Living University is taking a class in uh, contemporary religions. He was sharing with me a quote uh, from a book called Judaism and Christianity, The Differences. And this addresses the issue, can you know God? And this is uh, by Trudy Weiss Rosemarin, page 123. God, as the Jew knows him, is equally near to all men. Is that a true statement? No, it's not, because men resist God. They're not near him. They're fleeing from him. The promise is there, equal to all men, but not all men. God is not near to all men because all men don't want to be near to him. His nearness, depending upon how much, how near they want him to be to them and how closely they wish to approach his perfection by unrelenting ethical effort. That's true. God says, draw near me and I will draw near to you. But we know that God is not calling everyone. John 6:44. no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. So Jesus has drawn you personally. He repeats that in John 6.65. Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. So God is not calling everyone, and not everyone is equally near to God. Quoting again from this book, 
uh, titled Judaism and Christianity, The Differences, page 18. God is unknowable. For to really know him, man would have to possess divine faculties. In the words of Yadeya Ha-Panini, quote, could I ever know him, I would be he, end of quote. What's he saying? I have to be God in order to know God. No, that is terribly false. Because God has revealed himself. You can know God. And there are various religions that have this theology that God is unknowable. He's so infinite, which he is, and he's so omnipotent and so omnipresent and so omniscient, you cannot know him. Well, that's not true at all. One other comment from uh, page 18, he is exalted above any conception of him of which man is capable. Is that true? Is God unknowable? Can you know him? Let's turn to 1 John, the second chapter, 1 John 2. Now, again, the Apostle John was dealing with Gnostics who said you have to have special knowledge in order to climb the ladder to heaven or get to heaven. And so you'll find the expression, by this we know, quite frequently in John's epistles, particularly 1 John. Can you know that God exists, and can you know him? 1 John 2, verse 3. 1 John 2, verse 3. By, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Not only do we know him, but we know that we know him. We've proven God exists. We know that we know he exists if we keep his commandments. But there are various religious people, verse 4, who say, I know him, and he who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. We'll come back to this section uh, later on. But yes, we can know God, and there are those who have fled from God and have not followed the lead of his Holy Spirit. So we can be very thankful that God has called us. And uh, I didn't read that particular verse. Let me get back to that. I just uh, omitted 1 John 2, verse 3. I'll read that. I should have read a couple more verses in that uh, section. 1 John 2, verse 3, verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So again, we know that we are in him, that we abide in him, and he abides in us if we keep his commandments. And we ought to walk just as he walked, verse 6. That's a memorization verse, meaning we need to live the same way Jesus lived. And he set us that example. Are we living that way? One of Dr. Meredith's favorite songs is I'll Walk With God that was you saw that in a movie many years ago from uh, the student prince. And Mario Alonza sang that song. I'll just read you the words of that song. I'll walk with God from this day on. His helping hand I'll lean upon. This is my prayer, my humble plea. May the Lord be ever with me. 
There is no death through eyes grow dim. There is no fear when I'm near to Him. I'll lean on Him forever, and He'll forsake me never. He will not fail me as long as my faith is strong. Whatever road I may walk alone, I'll walk with God, I'll take His hand. I'll talk with God, He'll understand. I'll pray to Him each day to Him, and He'll hear the words that I say. His hand will guide my path aright, and I'll never walk alone while I walk with God. Well, very inspiring, and I hope that we have that concept of the nearness and the presence of God in our lives, that we are praying without ceasing. We have that continuous contact. But there are those from time to time who have gone astray, and some of you left God's church and have come back, and we're very thankful that you've learned some great lessons. The prodigal son had to learn lessons the hard way as well. I want to turn there to Luke, the 15th chapter, Luke 15. I actually have the parable of the lost coin, uh, the parable of the lost son, and uh, one other parable. Luke, the 15th chapter, verse 11 A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. So this is the parable of the prodigal son. Prodigal meaning, in the margin here, wasteful, uh, wasteful living. Uh, King James Version has riotous living. NIV, wild living. The English Standard Version, ESV, reckless living. So he had to learn the hard way. And he realized that he needed to come back to his father. And his father, of course, saw him from a distance and welcomed him back. His other son was jealous of the care and uh, compassion And so he tells his uh, other son, verse 32, It was right that we make Mary and be glad, for your brother was dead. He was spiritually dead and is alive again. It was lost and is found. We're very thankful in the church that, as I've mentioned before, examples of people who have left the church for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and even uh, 50 years, I found, I think I mentioned that to you before, an individual who went to the feast, first feast in 1961 in Big Sandy that I did. I met him there in Texas for the Feast of Trumpets in 2012, no, 2013. And anyway, he'd been away, the very first feast that I went to, well, the next feast was 50 years later, 2011. He had not attended the Feast of Tabernacles for 50 years and was baptized in 2012. This year, at the feast in Myrtle Beach, I met a woman, well, I've met her before, who attended imperial schools in Pasadena for four years, then attended Ambassador College for two years, left and got married in 1952, and that led to her distancing from the church. She left in 1952, saw Tomorrow's World telecast and came back in 2008 
and has now been a faithful member of the Living Church of God since 2008. Fifty-six years out of the church. And yet God still had mercy on her, still loves her, and she is a faithful, enthusiastic member of God's church. I don't think, brethren, that you want to stay away for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, or 56 years from God's church. I pray that we can all learn the lessons from those who ran from God and that we run toward God. So if we seek God with our whole heart, we humble ourselves before him, we can have forgiveness for our distancing ourselves from him, and we can be renewed and come back because we have a great high priest. I'll just read that to you. Hebrews 7:24, speaking of Christ, our intercessor, but he, because he continues forever as a Melchizedek priesthood, has an unchangeable priesthood. Hebrews 7:25. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, Christ knows your temptations. He knows your sins. He knows your willingness to confess your sins and repent. And he ever lives to make intercession for you. So there's still hope for those who've gone astray. Uh, there was the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. But God has promised to draw close to you. We saw that in James 4, verse 8. I want to give two more scriptures along that line on our closeness and intimacy with God and with Christ. Jeremiah 13. It's kind of graphic depending on how you visualize it. Uh, Jeremiah 13 and verse 11. Jeremiah 13 Verse 11, for as the sash clings to the waist of a man, other version has a belt around your waist, it's very tight, close, intimate, so have I caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Eternal, that they may become my people for renown, for praise, and for glory, but they did not hear. So God caused them to cling to him. The King James has, for as the girdle cleaves to the loins of a man, so have I caused unto me the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, says the Eternal. The NIV says, for as a belt is bound around the waist, so I bound all the people of Israel and all the people of Judah to me, declares the Lord. So are you cleaving to God? Are you clinging to God? Are you bound to God? Turn to Psalm 139. Another insight as to our closeness and relationship with God, that He is near to us. He's aware of us. And we may not be as actively seeking Him, but He's still available to His children. Psalm 139 really describes God's characteristic of omnipresence. He's not he's omnipresent through his spirit, as it explains here in Psalm 139. O eternal, David writes, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. 
Well, just listen to the words, just how much does God know about you? Listen to the detail that David writes about in that knowing of his activities. O eternal, you've searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. He knows when you sit down here in the auditorium. He knows when you rise up here in the auditorium. You understand my thought afar off. God knows what you're thinking, even right now. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. God knows your habits. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your strengths. He knows what you need to grow and what characteristics to develop with his help. There's not a word on my tongue, verse 4, but behold, O eternal, you know it all together. God knows every word that you speak. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I can't attain it. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, or Hades, it would be in the Hebrew. I mean Sheol, sorry, in the Hebrew. Behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. That's what Jonah tried to do, uh, but he couldn't escape God. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me. And our society and our world feels that, yes, they can get away with sin in the dark. Even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day, and the darkness and the light are both alike for you. And he tells about his formation in the womb and how close he is to God. So God knows everything about you. He knows your thoughts. He knows every word. He knows every time you get up and go down. He knows all your ways. So he knows you intimately. It's like uh, he knows every bone of your body. He knows every muscle. He knows all the nerves. He knows all your organs in your body. Because he says, of course, in Luke 12, verse 7, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So God is infinite. He knows you every detail, every cell of your body, every hair on your head. And Jesus goes on to say, Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So Christ has put a great value on you by shedding his blood for you personally. You are of great value. You may think, I'm nothing, I'm just a worm. Christ shed his blood for you to let you be reconciled to God so you can be a part of God's family. He says in verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So we need to search ourselves and realize, yes, God knows my weaknesses. I know what I need to change. I need to know what I need to overcome. So God promises to love you, to be close to you, to guide you for your good, to give you peace, prosperity, and blessings as long as you are living his way of life. Now let's take a look at some men and women who were close to God. And I've just been reading recently my own personal 
reading through the Bible again in uh, the NASB, in a different uh, translation, reading the story of Joseph. And that, that story has brought me to tears I don't know how many times when you read it through from beginning to end. Uh, here's a teenager that had a bad thing happen to him, and yet God gave him dreams that <laughs> even his parents were going to the sun and moon and the stars were going to bow down to him, uh, meaning his father and mother and, and his brothers were going to bow down to him. Of course, they hated him. That is, the brothers hated him. Well, what were they going to do with him? But, you know, when I read through this story, I don't see any indication that Joseph was really actively seeking God, but I do see in there that God was being close to Joseph. Let's turn to Genesis 37 and verse 18. So his brothers were jealous. They actually wanted to kill him. Verse 18, Genesis 37. Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, because he thought he could secretly rescue Joseph later, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. But while Reuben was away, A company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead, verse 25. So Judah said, well, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Verse 27, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. So they sold him for 20 shekels of silver and took this teenager, Joseph, to Egypt. And Reuben, who wanted to save uh, Joseph, came back and saw that he was gone. Reuben tore his clothes and uh, he was very sad about that, but the brothers took his, his cloak, his uh, many-colored coat, as uh, we called it years ago, took it to the father and said, we found this. Do you know if this is your son's tunic or not? And so the father concluded that a wild beast had killed him, and Jacob tore his clothes, verse 34. Now the Midianites, verse 36, now the Midianites had sold in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. It was a tragic event, was it? It was tragic to Joseph's father, Jacob. But was it tragic for Joseph? Well, we have an inset chapter about Judah and and Tamar in chapter 38, but we go to chapter 39. We find that Joseph has been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmaelites that paid for him as a bond servant who had taken him down there. But notice verse 2. The Lord, the Eternal, was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now even the master saw what was happening in Joseph's life. Verse 3, and his master saw that the Eternal was with him and that the Eternal made all he did to prosper in his hand, made him overseer of the house. Verse 4 and verse 5, the Eternal blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And then, of course, Potiphar's wife started to tempt him and tried to seduce him. Uh, Joseph resisted day after day after day. Uh, Finally, she grabbed his uh, tunic, his cloak, 
and then falsely accused him, and now another tragedy, what happens? He's put in prison by false accusations. Verse 20 of chapter 39, And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But what do we read in verse 21? But the eternal was with him. Brethren, is God with you? Is Christ with you? Draw near to God and he will be, he'll draw near to you. But the eternal was with Joseph and showed him mercy and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Verse 23, the keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the eternal was with him and whatever he did, the eternal made him prosper. So now Joseph has been sold as a slave. Now he was successful for a while. Now he's falsely accused. Now he's in prison. God's with him, but he's still in prison. He's the supervisor over all the other prisoners. And so two of the prisoners are the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry, chapter 40, verse 2, with the chief butler and chief baker, or as they had a dream, verse 5, and uh, Joseph interprets the dream and tells them within three days, verse 13, Pharaoh will lift up your head, that is the cupbearer, and restore you to your place. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. Verse 14, Genesis 40, but remember me. When it is well with you, and please show kindness to me, make mention of me to Pharaoh, and get me out of this house. You know, even though God was prospering as a supervisor, Joseph still wanted to get out of jail. He said, please remember me. So it comes to pass, and then, of course, the other uh, individual uh, was the baker, and uh, the Pharaoh, three days later, lifted his head, executed him. He restored the chief butler, verse 21, hanged the chief baker, verse 22, verse 23, but the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Oh, no. Here, Joseph has hope that he's going to be released from prison because now the uh, cupbearer had been restored to Pharaoh. Please remember me. No, he didn't remember him. Verse chapter 41, then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. So two years later, finally, God gives Joseph this opportunity to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And in one day, Pharaoh makes him ruler over the great Egyptian empire. So God had a purpose, but Joseph had to persevere in very trying circumstances. God was with him in those trying circumstances. Chapter 41, verse 46, And Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. He had two sons, chapter verse 51, Manasseh and Ephraim. So you can read the rest of that story, just very inspiring. How Again, his father and brothers eventually came down to Egypt. When bad things happen to good people, remember Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according 
to his purpose. I'll just give you a couple of the references for a time. First Samuel 3, verse 18. You know, here was Samuel as a little boy. And uh, we find in 1 Samuel 3.18, And Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So Samuel grew, verse 19, 1 Samuel 3, And the Eternal was with him, and let none of his words fall on the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. So we've seen cases here in which it appears that God is calling people, being with them, without the reciprocation of their individually seeking him. God can be with people even though they may not have sought him. In David's case, um, Saul, you know, the conflict with King Saul and David, and how Saul tried to kill David twice. Again, I won't turn there, but 1 Samuel 8, verse 11 Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. It says in 1 Samuel 18, 12, Now Saul was afraid of David because the Eternal was with him. Is the Eternal with you? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. There are many other examples. Um, Luke, the first chapter, uh, the mother of Jesus spoke under inspiration of God. And Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke 1, verse 41. So, brethren, God has given us these examples of men and women who were close to God, and God was close to them. Not only has God been close, spiritually speaking, But God has manifested himself in a physical form to human beings many times throughout history. And if you were visited by the Lord, the Eternal, how would you have welcomed him? How would you have hosted him? Well, you know the example of Abraham. Let's turn to there to Genesis 18. Genesis 18.1. Then the Eternal appeared to him, that is Abraham, by the terebinth trees of memory as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of day. He saw three men and said, If I found favor, take a little water and I'll bring a morsel of bread, verse 5. And uh, they said, Do as you said. So here is the Eternal promising that Sarah is going to have a son, verse 10. And he's saying, well, should I hide from Abraham, verse 17, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed to him. So here is the eternal. This is the one who became Jesus Christ, the Logos, the ever-living one, who appeared in physical form, and it's very plain that that's who he is. There's no question about it. And, of course, Abraham is bold enough to plead with the Lord about saving Sodom from if they had 50 righteous people. And, you know, verse 25, Abraham is pretty bold. 
and saying, Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far from you, far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham is preaching to God. No, God said, Oh, zap, you're dead. No, uh, he didn't, didn't bother the eternal at all. He patient with the Abraham's boldness. Then he continued to uh, negotiate. Abraham said in verse 27, Indeed, now I who am but dust and ashes have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. So he humbled himself. In verse 33, the eternal went his way. An amazing example that God appeared to men. Turn to Genesis, the 32nd chapter. Another remarkable example. Now, why did God do this? Because he wanted to train them. He said, shall I share with Abraham, who's going to be a father of many nations, what I'm going to do? God was sharing with him. Genesis 32, you know the story of Jacob. And, well, to make a long story short, we'll go to chapter 32 and uh, verse 22. And he arose that night and took his two wives and his two female servants and his eleven sons, crossed over the ford Jabbok, uh, because he was, of course, trying to appease his brother Esau. He was afraid with the 400 men that Esau was coming at him there in chapter 32, verse 6. But now, verse 23, he took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had, and he was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day, until dawn. And so he wouldn't let go. And he said, let me go, verse 26. But he said, I will not let you go, Jacob's telling the eternal, unless you bless me. What's your name? He said, Jacob. Well, it's no longer Jacob but it will be Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed, verse 28. And so who was this? Jacob, verse 30, called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Remarkable. But God is loving. Then chapter 35 and verse 9. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So God appeared to him. Let's turn to Exodus, the 32nd chapter. We need to move ahead here. Chapter 32. That Moses was up in Mount Sinai, at the very top, with God for 40 days and 40 nights. And after, of course, the uh, incident of the golden calf, he went back up, prostrated himself for 40 days and and 40 nights. So, again, um, chapter 33, verse 11. I had a wrong reference. I had chapter 32. Chapter 33. So the Eternal spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. I won't turn there, but Numbers 12 and verse 6, 
God says here, now my words, if there's a prophet among you, I, the Eternal, will make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? That's the incident of Aaron and uh, his sister. That's Numbers 12. Turn to Exodus 24. Who else saw God? There are many examples. I better not uh, keep going on with all of them here, but just one, uh, one more that we'll turn to. Exodus 24 and verse 9. In chapter 24, verse 9, Exodus. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. Exodus 24, verse 10. And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. So there are many other examples. There's uh, Joshua, chapter 5, and verse 14. I won't turn there, but Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped the commander of the army of the eternal. That's Joshua 5, verse 14. Then Solomon, Second Chronicles 1, verse 7. Remember that God gave Solomon the opportunity to ask whatever he wanted. And he asked for understanding to rule his people. Second Chronicles 1.7, On that night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask, what shall I give you? And then the Messiah came, Emmanuel, God with us. And he came as the prophesied Emmanuel, God with us. And they rejected him, of course. And then Jesus, even after his resurrection, appeared to his disciples John 21, verse 14. Now this is the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. The Apostle Paul thought that he might have even bodily been taken up to heaven. He didn't know. But he said in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. So God gave Paul very close, a close relationship with Jesus Christ. So God loves humans so much that he appeared face to face, the one who became Christ, with some. He appeared to Abraham, Jacob, Moses. Seventy elders of Israel, to Joshua, Solomon, even the nation of Judah as the Lamb of God, as Emmanuel. And after his resurrection, he appeared to his disciples. And Stephen, when he was giving his defense before Sanhedrin, saw Christ at the right hand of God, the Apostle Paul. So we think about the times that God appeared to men and the triumphal entry But here the king of the Jews was entering into Jerusalem. Just that inspiring story. Let's turn there just briefly. Luke, the 19th chapter. Luke 19. 
I hope you would have welcomed Christ if he came to your home, as did Abraham. And what about the crowds that welcomed Jesus coming into Jerusalem? Luke, the 19th chapter, Luke 19. Even children were praising him. He came in on the donkey, as was prophesied. Luke 19, starting with verse 37, Then as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Luke 19, verse 38, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees said to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Verse 40, But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silence, the stones would immediately cry out. The Creator, the Logos, the Word, the King of the Jews and the King of kings and Lord of lords was entering his city. He was king of that city. Melchizedek, king of Salem. And people, his disciples, appropriately praised him. And if they wouldn't, he said, even the stones would immediately cry out. Remember these examples of God's love. Read about them in your own Bible and grow in faith, as it tells us in Romans 10.17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So how do we draw close to God? Well, you know that, but let's turn to Hebrews, the fourth chapter, Hebrews 4. God has given us such exceeding, great, and precious promises that by these we may be partakers of his divine nature. And the Jewish theology that says you have to be divine in order to know God, well, yes, you need God's Holy Spirit. Hebrews, the fourth chapter, starting here in verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Some people will tell us as ministers, well, Mr. Ames, you don't understand the kind of pain I'm suffering. Well, I may not have had that particular kind of pain, but I've had pain. And I can sympathize, but Christ knows what it's like when you're in pain. He knows what it's like when you're oppressed. He knows what it's like when you're ill. Therefore, verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. No, God is there for you. And Jesus Christ as a high priest knows that all of your problems, knows all of your challenges, your weaknesses and your strengths, And he's going to be with you, he's going to bless you, and he will give you mercy and grace to help in time of need. We have the telecast, Seven Keys to Answered Prayer, that aired August 10th. It's available on the website, and of course we have the booklet, Twelve Keys to Answered Prayer. 
Turn to Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64. Yes, we have to confess our sins. We have to humble ourselves before God, but just cry out to Him. Be very, very open. Just as you read through the Psalms, you realize David is very open with God. He says, how long is it going to be before you rescue me, Lord? Isaiah 64. We have to confess our sins and sometimes wrestle with God the way Jacob did, take hold of him. And he gives this indication that someone was not taking hold of God as he or she should. Isaiah 64, verse 6. But we are all like an unclean thing. All our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Any righteousness we have is because of Christ living his life in us. We all fade as a leaf. All our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Verse 7 is the key here. And there is no one who calls on your name who stirs himself up to take hold of you. Sometimes we have to stir ourselves up to take hold of God. The same way Jacob did physically, we do it spiritually. We wrestle with God. We take hold of Him. We cling to Him. We cleave to Him. We're bound to Him. For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. There's no one who calls on your name who stirs up himself to take hold of you. But we have to stir ourselves up from time to time. We have to stir ourselves up, stir up the spirit that's in us to fan the flame, as it tells us in 2 Timothy. I mentioned that about clinging. I'll just give you that reference. That was Jeremiah 13, 11. For as the sash clings to the waist of a man, so have I caused the whole house of Israel. We have to claim God's promises of intimacy. You know God's promises, but let's review them quickly here. Jeremiah 29, 11. We're covering quite a few scriptures, but it will help us to be closer to God in our walk with God daily, to be instant in prayer, to pray without ceasing. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Eternal. What does God think towards you? Thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call on me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me. When you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord. That's that initiative. We must take action and seek him. You know Deuteronomy, the fourth chapter, but let's reinforce the same principle of seeking God. Deuteronomy, the fourth chapter, we've given this example as one of the keys of purposes of prophecy to let people know ahead of time that if they ever end up in captivity, they will have had this witness and they will have had this promise. It says, you will serve God's the work of men's hands. Verse 29, Deuteronomy 4. But from there... You will seek the eternal your God, and you will find him if you seek, with, seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. So God is talking about even the latter days that he's going to scatter them. But he says, I will be with you 
even then when you're in captivity, if you seek me. And one more, Isaiah 55. You know that by heart. I hope uh, I'm tempted, but I I won't uh, do a survey and ask how many of you have memorized Isaiah 55, verse 6. If you haven't, it should be a part of your biblical vocabulary. Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the eternal while he may be found. That's the message we're giving to the world. And if you haven't found the eternal, then you need to seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. He's close by. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the eternal, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So seek God's guidance continually. That's the seventh law of success, by the way. And remember 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. We need to draw close to God, confessing our sins, but let's understand that we can come boldly before God's throne in prayer. But there's even a greater intimacy that God has with us, and that's through the Holy Spirit that God gives us. And that's Galatians 2.20, the King James Version. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. So not only do we have a relationship and coming before God's throne, knowing that Christ is at the right hand of God's throne as our high priest and intercessor, he still lives in us. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God, by Christ's faith, who loved me and gave himself for me. But how do we know whether Christ is living his life in us or not? We're in the first John, the third chapter, first John three. Key verse here. First John three and verse twenty four. Now he who keeps his commandments and abides in him, and he in him. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, that is the Christian abides in God and God in him. And how do we know? By this we know that he abides in us by the spirit, which, as it should read, he has given us. He repeats that same principle in verse 13 of chapter 4. 1 John 4:13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So while we're here, we might take a look at, I was hoping to have the time, I didn't have time to go through the whole New Testament and identify probably, I would guess, maybe some of you have done that study, uh, two or three dozen references that reference we abide in God and God abides in us or various variations of that basic reality. And So let's take a look at some right here in 1 John. We already quoted this earlier, 1 John 2, verse 6. He who says he abides in him 
ought also to walk just as He walked. So not only does Christ live in us, but we live in Him through the body of Christ, even the spiritual organism, the church, but also spiritually. And then 1 John 2, verse 24. Therefore let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, that is, the truth, the commandments, the word that the aged Apostle John was sharing, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Chapter 3, verse 6. Whoever abides in Him does not sin. means practice sin. Whoever sins has neither seen Him nor known Him. And we just read chapter 3, verse 24, chapter 4, verse 13, that we know that we abide in Him. But notice verse 15, 1 John 4, verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Now that would seem blasphemous to this carnal, secular, materialistic world, that God can live his life in us. But that's the reality, and that's the promise, and that's what God wants He wants you to abide in Him. He wants you to have that kind of intimacy with Him and with Christ. What an awesome promise God is giving us that if we draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. So the greatest intimacy we have with our Father in Christ is there dwelling in us by the Holy Spirit. I might turn there to John 14, 23. John 14:23 there are many other references but because of time I'll just select this one John 14 verse 23 If anyone loves me Jesus says he will keep my word and my father will love him and we the father and Christ will come to him and make our home with Him. Those are tremendous promises that God gives us. We have to ask Christ to live His life in us, and we in Him. We need to nurture that intimacy, that unity, and that closeness to God. He wants you to be a part of His immortalized, spiritual, glorified family. He's demonstrated that love throughout all human history. The Eternal met with Abraham. Abraham prepared a meal for the Lord. Jacob wrestled with the Eternal and prevailed. God was with Joseph when he was sold as a teenager as a bond servant. And God was with Joseph when he spent years in prison. Moses talked with God face to face. The 70 elders of Israel saw God on the mountain. Mary, the mother of Jesus, spoke under inspiration. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, was filled with the Holy Spirit when Mary visited her. On the other hand, Adam hid from God. Jonah fled from God. 
But we need to be intimate with God. The Father has also demonstrated His love by sacrificing His his Son to pay for our sins. Let's turn to 1 John, the third chapter. And He's demonstrated that love. How has He given that evidence? God gives us proof, testimony, and evidence after evidence. But do we believe it? Do we accept it? Do we embrace it? 1 John, the third chapter. Behold... 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. What kind of love? That we should be called the children of God. Maybe you take that for granted, but it is special. It is vital. It is precious. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So God gives us that promise. He tells us he loves us, and one of the proofs is that he calls us his children. Christ has promised faithfulness towards us and nearness and closeness to us. And I claim those two promises frequently. Jesus said in Matthew 28:20, 20, "Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." And Hebrews 13:5, "I will never leave you nor forsake you." So if you feel distant from God, remember those promises. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So God has demonstrated his love toward us by giving us a great mission, which we heard about in the sermonette. We saw the inspiring unity of God's church and the ministry in the feast film this year on the sevenfold mission. The very spiritual body of Christ has that mission. The closer we are to God and Christ, the greater work we'll accomplish. And as the children of God, the members of the body of Christ, as the church of the living God, and as brothers and sisters in Christ, we can fulfill God's will and his work and his mission. How close are you to God? Claim God's promise of James 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you.